Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed changed utterly a terrible beauty is born so dominic those are the the closing lines of william butler yeats's great poem easter 1916 written about the easter rising yep which we began this series it seems a long time ago several centuries ago <laughs> with um with the proclamation read by patrick pierce outside the gpo where we are currently sitting as yep. we reach the fourth and final episode in our great sweep through the history of Ireland and its relations right. with and Britain. And it's extraordinary to be doing this story, the Easter Rising, 1916, surely the most discussed, celebrated moment in Irish history. It's extraordinary to be recording that in the GPO, in the building that was the epicenter of the drama. We're looking out over O'Connell Street, the buses, the trams. So if you do hear a bit of banging and crashing outside and sirens and whatnot, that's all part of the exciting Irish local colour. And we're back with the person who read that proclamation for us so brilliantly at the beginning of the first episode, Paul Rouse, Professor of History at University College Dublin. So, Paul, the stage is set and, the you know, off you go. I mean, this is your story. I don't think you want two British people to be telling the story of the Easter Rising, do you? Or do you? Well, I think it is an extraordinary story. It's a British story and an Irish story. And... Tommy read from W.B. Yeats. It's a story of poet and poets and their poetry and its impact. It's a story of poverty through another strand with James Connolly. It's a story of language and education with Patrick Pierce. And it's a story of those ardent revolutionaries who were there, who all walked in right under where we stand here at the GPO just before noon on Easter Monday, 1916, 24th of April, and declared an Irish Republic in this building and you read the bit about Pierce and McDonough and right, I, I come to the start of that poem though which Yeats wrote several months after the rising he's ambiguous in how he views the rising but he didn't publish it until 1920 which is really interesting he held on to it because the world was changed and he says changed utterly but it was changing with a rapidity after 1916 which emphasizes just what a pivotal moment in Irish history it is, and by extension, in the history of the United Kingdom. But he opened that poem, Easter 1916, by saying, I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces. And for those people who read deeply in Irish history, they'll know that Vivid Faces is a brilliant book written by Professor Roy Foster, who was just an outstanding historian and in Oxford for very many years. And that idea that I met them at close of day, these were people that were known to Yeats and known to Dubliners, known to people all around the place. And you must remember, Dublin was a small city. Dublin felt and still sometimes feels like a country town. 
because its center is so small. You can't walk the streets of this city still without meeting someone who you know or running into them in different places. And Ireland is a small country, so even people who move up to the place are known and there are connections and there are, it's networks of associations, but also of family and of schooling and of, of local loyalties remade in this city. And they're all across this period. So who are these people then? Who are the people who Yates is eulogising and who take this fateful step in Easter in 1916? Well, we can go through them one after the next in terms of the groups of people that were there. Right at the core of the story is the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who we last met back founded after the famine in America and in England. They had flows of guns, flows of money coming from America. But the truth of it is, they had done nothing about revolution since the since 1867. They had sought to enter into politics and to be part of organisation. But they could not be considered to be successful. Indeed, they were mocked as a group of old people who really didn't do a whole pile. And if you look at one of their number, it was reconstituted in 1906-1907. And it was a new generation took over the IRB and one of them. And to give you an idea of what they were like, one of them is Dennis McCullough. Dennis McCullough was brought into a pub in Belfast and sworn into the IRB. He was brought to the pub by his father. And he so was it's a kind of secret organisation. Secret organisation, kind of like, like dedicated kind of to the overthrow. Yes, Freemasons. That's exactly it. And they're dedicated to the overthrow of British rule in Ireland. And by violent means, apparently. And McCullough in this pub was disgusted by what he saw. He saw a whole load of windbags who had no interest in doing anything. So he shipped them out one after the next, including his own father. His own so father. when you, his own generation came in, the one person from the older generation who was central to it, though, was Tom Clark. So Tom Clark had been involved in a dynamiting campaign in the 1880s in England, was arrested, spent a lot of time in English prisons, came out around 1900, went to America for a few years, but in 1906 was living around the corner from here where he ran a tobaccoist. And that tobaccoist shop became a hub of revolution. People coming in and out of it, passing notes. He's reorganizing the Irish Republican Brotherhood who are ready to go and at the core of this revolution is the Irish Republican Brotherhood, who, it was Clark who held a meeting just after the outbreak of the Great War in September 1914, who said, we will strike before this war ends. He was disgusted that there had been no rebellion during the Boer War and he was determined not to miss this chance. So Clark set on revolution and later in early 1915 set up a small military council to develop the plans. So they're at the core of everything that happens is the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The second group who are involved are a group of socialists, essentially the Irish Citizen Army, headed by James Connolly. Connolly was born in Scotland, born in Edinburgh, to Irish emigrant parents who had come to Ireland as a labour organiser and had been involved in the 1913 lockout, which was a really famous trade union conflict with businesses in Dublin, which was a seminal moment again in Irish labour politics. And it was a vivid illustration of the poverty of Dublin and the poverty of Dublin. There's all this nonsense spoken about Dublin as a second city of empire, of the second city of empire. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be the second city of empire? And it's said of Birmingham as well, by the way, and Calcutta and Edinburgh. So it was one of those titles. But what Dublin did was, was a deeply divided society where you had a crust of people with a lot of money in the beginning, there's a rising middle class, but on the bottom, there are people who are in the most appalling circumstances living around the place. 
So you get 25,000 families living in one-roomed accommodation. Many of those families even took in lodgers into their one room. They had no sanitation, no running water. There were often cattle and sheep or cattle kept out the back of the houses for milk and so on. So this is a very poor, very poor city. And it was out of this city that labor agitation began in 1913. But the labor agitation happened at exactly the same time, of course, as the Ulster Volunteers had been founded by Carson. So James Connolly had a simple idea. We would protect our workers by setting up our own militia, the Irish Citizen Army, and they trained. And Connolly was disillusioned by 1915 with progress of war. The war had got in on him. He was himself a former British Army soldier, by the way. But he set on revolution too. The volunteers knew he was set on revolution, so they pulled him into his military council. So that's the second group of people. And just before you move on to the next groups, that shows, doesn't it, just how much Irish politics has been radicalised and I suppose paramilitarised by the experience of 1912 to 14. It is impossible to understand The 1916 Rising, without looking at the militarisation of Irish society begun by Edward Carson and the Ulster Volunteer Force and their foundation, added to by the gun running at Larne, where the Ulster Volunteer Force brought in German and other guns with which to say that they will resist home rule at any cost in Ulster. Radicalised also by the uncertain loyalty of the British Army in Ireland through its current mutiny, essentially says we will not dispossess the Ulster Volunteer Force of those guns which they have brought in. I mean, how extraordinary is it that the British Army could not be relied on to do the will of the British government? What, yeah. a, what, a, what a statement of the state of British politics that that is. But the Irish Volunteers, under Owen MacNeill, a professor of medieval history and early Irish history at University College Dublin at the time, and a complete and utter a rebuttal to the idea that academics are useless, founded, <laughs> founded, founded the Irish Volunteer Force after writing an article called The North Began. And they too began to run in guns through 1914. And you get this split then after the war when John Redmond asked those volunteers to join the British Army and fight for the empire, thereby guaranteeing home rule the volunteers. I'll come back to explain that split more fully when we talk about more people in it. But what it meant was that there was a standing army of ten to 15,000 people who were in Ireland, the militia, who were there to be tweaked towards the idea of revolution. But that militarization of, of Ireland, you're right, like Dominic, it's fundamental to the context in which there are guns and people out parading in Dublin. So the, the other groups that are involved, so we've got the, the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Irish Citizens Army, and there are other groups as well. So yeah. there, are, there are poets, there, there, there are educators. There are, more ideas, there are more ideas than groups. So you've got a group of groups of kind of Catholic intellectuals, people like Thomas McDonough. Again, these people are brilliantly described in vivid faces and their ideas are all over the place. And they're part of a, a kind of an Irish Ireland movement, which is all around the idea that you know, Ireland should have its own culture. It's an awakening of ideas using modern ideas. And you know the way there was British press would tell a, a kind of Beagles type stories for the late 19th century. You know, that yeah. idea of books or of magazines being put out. There were Irish versions of those stories where the heroes of 1798 and of 1848 and of 1867 were recast. Because what, one of the things that struck me reading about the Easter Rising is that a lot of the the Irish nationalist organisations are definitely drawing on British models. 
even the Irish volunteers are, they're kind of doing drill like the British Army do. Their officers are, well, they are kind of mimicking the style of British officers. Yeah, I mean, so, and and that whole cult of kind of manliness, we did an episode on King Solomon's Minds we just did, a yeah. few weeks ago. This has been kind of guilicized, I suppose you would you would say. Yeah, they, they, they gaelicized it by turning it on its head. So you have the English model of sport in Ireland. You have rugby and soccer and cricket and formed in modern clubs around Ireland, but they fly the Union Jack. They have the Lord Lieutenant as their patron. So in the middle of the 1880s, a group of Irish nationalists, but who people who were sports lovers, founded the Gaelic Athletic Association and resurrected the game of hurling, made a game which they called Gaelic football, took control of athletics and said, right, you choose. English laws for sport or Irish laws for sport. Now, of course, the reality of people's lives are that people don't necessarily live like that. They want a little bit of this and a little bit of everything, really. And But that's there. Those ideas are there in the background. It's English popular culture is everywhere yeah. in Ireland in the late 19th and early 20th There's centuries. There's a sort of Boy Scout aspect to this, isn't there? Yeah, so Nafina Aaron is a remaking of the English scout movement, except soaked in the history of Irish republicanism and the idea of, of Irish separatism. And loads of those guys walk into this building with Pierce yeah. in 1916. And that really, really matters to the idea of a creation. And this is the last thing, this idea, this last group of people who are influenced by the idea of Ireland by this notion. And there's, there's a school not far from here, St. Andrew's National School. And the role book for Easter week 1916 has no students in it because it says closed for the poet's revolution. <laughs> and that tells you something. So where does poetry come into the revolution? I think poetry comes in in three different ways. The first of it is this creation of the idea, the alternative to the British Empire. And this idea, this world of ideas that there is an ancient Ireland remade through its history, that there is mythology through Cucullin and Nafina, which can be put there. And this, our antiquity, we were there before the British Empire was we were there before they even... Before the Anglo-Saxons even pitched yeah, up. Yeah, we were here yeah. and we'll, we'll survive them. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We will go back to our ways. So that idea is there. So poetry matters for that. It helped create that. It matters too because there were poets who fought and died in the rising or were executed after the rising Pierce wrote poetry McDonough was a really well regarded poet James Connolly wrote poetry and plays and so on this was a revolution of words and revolutionaries who used words all the time and the third may it matters is the words of Yeats afterwards and the amount Mm. and the words that were written about it and how they told a very particular story of the revolution and that can be seen in, in the accounts from the time and afterwards. So again, reading about this, again and again, scholars make this point. So Peter Hart described the entire Easter Rising as a unique example of insurrectionary abstract art, which I thought was kind of brilliant. What does he mean by that? My favourite book on the idea of this, and I commend it to everybody, it was recommended to me when I took a course on the Irish Revolution in 1989 by Professor Michael Affen called The Imagination of an Insurrection, written by an American philosopher called William Irwin Thompson. It is just the most magnificent exploration of the relationship between poetry and revolution and the human condition and how those three things are not, in, you know, they're all related and all intertwined. And there is a thing, there is a thing where people have taken selected writings 
from some of the people, notably Patrick Pierce from The Rising, and see it only as bloodlust. And they decontextualize it from the idea of war in Europe at the time and the stuff that was being written by the poets of the Great War and what they saw. And it was as if there was a death wish from some people that they saw it as theatre, that they didn't understand that these were somehow woolly people who did not understand what war was. And that is entirely wrong, in my view. They went and planned this for a long time. You may argue that the plans turn out to be terrible and impossible and that it did indeed become bloody protest rather than coup d'etat. You may yeah. argue that, but they fought, they struggled for a long time to plan for it. But this is the idea that Patrick Pierce in particular is associated with it, that they know that the revolution is going to be wiped out, that they will probably be killed. And so that they are kind of offering themselves up the phrases as a blood sacrifice modeled on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the fact that it was Easter as well and that it's, it's kind of insurrection as resurrection and that it's poetry and prayer and it's all rubbed in together. But where I think that breaks down is the extent to which they sought to arm themselves from Germany. They sought to go. Why did Pierce go on speaking tours of America? Why did they try and raise money? Why did they import so many guns? Why did they spend more than a year planning? So they're planning from what point? From the, the moment the war breaks out or from a few months? They're talking the about it from the moment. They decide the moment the war breaks out, but the military council really gets going in the spring of 1915. So home rule has been passed, but has been constantly pushed back, delayed. And is that because, is the reason they want to do an uprising because they think actually the British will always find a way not to give us home rule or because they think home rule is just nowhere near enough. We want to push for more. So the view is that home rule is not enough, that because of the limitations to do with finance and, and on defence, that really it's, it's anemic yeah. and it doesn't amount to anything approaching independence. Right. Number one. Number two, the home rule was on the statute books, had been passed, signed off by the king, but it was now clear that there was going to be exclusion for at least six counties for a period of time and, and clearly indefinitely because a Tory government would come back in and you know, things will be changed and things will be moved on. Yeah. And there was that old adage of Irish republicanism, which ties in with the idea of Ireland being dangerous because of its links with France and Spain. But this is it recast in a different way. The gallant allies in Europe, we can use these people to get ourselves the guns that we need. We can't get enough to America in, but we can use the Germans to help us be freed. And that old adage of England's difficulty being Ireland's opportunity. Right. It's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. But why are the British not aware of what's going on? I mean, because if all these guns are being collected and would kind poets of are writing them, yeah. manifestos, and yet it seems to take the British completely by surprise. John Dillon makes a speech in the spring of 1915 in Scotland. So John Dillon is the... Just the sorry, I should explain that. Yeah. So John Dillon, so back in... In the spring of 1915, John Dillon, who's John Redmond's number two in the Irish Parliamentary Party, is making a speech in Scotland and he says, listen, there's a lot of talk at the moment about there's going to be a rising in Ireland in the next while. He says, ah, they're, they're, they're not going to do that. Like Michael Fish with the with report the, of the hurricane. The hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to come. Yeah. Um, but they know people are talking about it, Patrick Pearce and whatnot, but they think these are just, you know, it's like students in the pub talking about revolution. I mean, this will never happen. 
Is that is that based? Yeah, sort of condescending attitude almost. It, it is, but it's understandable in very many respects, and not least because of the militarization that we spoke about. Because these Irish volunteers are actually up and down parading and have been for a couple of years. They're out on the streets, right? And it's a familiar thing to see militias of men in military formation marching up and down the streets and being called and going on manoeuvres. So it's easy to understand and to convince yourself that it's going to be fine. Another reason, of course, is that Redmond, John Redmond, was telling Augustine Burrell, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, and telling Dublin Castle and telling Wimber, they all knew, oh no, the worst thing you can do here is to move against these guys. Then you will cause revolution. Yeah, of course. I mean, that so often happens, right? The, yes. So the, move against them, try to suppress them, and you will give them a cause. Yeah. And essentially, you can understand a lot of 1798 by understanding that approach. So I, I it became British. It was the Commission of Inquiry after the Rising blamed Burrell, Augustine Burrell, and blamed Dublin Castle for their failures before the Rising. I think it's much more, it's not as clear as that. I think that's easy. It's an easy way to do it, but it, it doesn't hold water. So before we go to the break, Paul, and, and get into the actual story, the narrative, the, the character who more than anybody else embodies the spirit of the Easter Rising, we've mentioned him a couple of times, but we've never really explained him, is this guy, Patrick Pierce. So he's actually been missing. You know, when we did the Home Rule crisis and all that, his name never featured at all. I mean, I don't know. You said that everybody knew everybody in Dublin. But who is he? Is he a big figure? And how is it that he, more than anybody else, becomes the, you know, the walking embodiment of this kind of the spirit of this extraordinary year? In a revolution peopled everywhere by extraordinary characters, there is nobody quite like Patrick Pierce. He has his demonizers and he has his idolaters who have sought to position him in a certain way and to cast him in a certain light. And almost always they do disservice to the scale of the intellect that were there, the scale of achievements that were there outside the revolutionary sphere. So he was born into to an English father who was... Uh, he was a, a Brummy, wasn't he? Yeah, and stonemason. And, and, and yeah. um, he went to university, studied English and Irish and French, qualified as a lawyer, went to the battle, but he was motivated most of all by Irish language revival and the, by... Involvement in the Gaelic League, he became editor of a newspaper called On Clive Sullish, which was the most important Irish language publication there. And he sought always to expand the boundaries. But it was education which motivated him more than anything else. He set up his own boys' school, St. Enda's, uh, on the south side of Dublin and added a girls' school to it because he was an absolute believer in equality between men and women. So he set up St. Eda's, which only lasted a while. The education in St. Enda's was Gaelic. The idea was that there should be education through bilingualism. And he went to Belgium and studied the methods that were used there, brought them back to Ireland and sought to kind of build a citizenship and an idea of intellectual journey, which was around this. Was he involved in politics? Yes, he began to be pulled into politics. He stood in favor of home rule in 1912 and 1913. He yeah. believed in the idea of home rule. He didn't think it was enough, but he thought it was a decent thing to be going on with. It was only later into 1914 that he really became radicalized onto the idea that there should be a revolution. Now, some people say it's because his school was failing and that he needed money and his life was kind of unraveling on him and that he had painted himself into the corner where he needed to make a dramatic statement. I disagree with that. I think it's 
that's deny him his own agency in, and he showed a clear pattern through his life of evolving his thought in a whole load of ways. I should say, by the way, in passing, if anyone wants to read a brilliant exploration of the education system in Britain and Ireland, read The Murder Machine, which is a book he wrote about how rote learning was destroying education at the time. And he called for creativity and innovation and a child-centered approach to education way, way, way ahead of his time. Anyway, he was on the military council, appointed to the military council of the IRB in 1915, and he was then set on revolution. He was inspirational or driving the idea that there should be guns imported, that there would be training and that Ireland would rise. And the date set for this rebellion was Easter 1916. Right. I think at this point we should take a break. And then Paul, when we come back, you could take us through the events of Easter 1916. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are entering the final lap of this mighty Irish marathon. Paul Rouse, who has been doing a Herculean job. But Paul, the end is finally in sight for you. Take us through the story of Easter 1916. Sir Roger Casement, who would have been known across Britain and Ireland in the first two decades of the 20th century as the man who had investigated the imperial outrages in the Congo, who'd repeated it in, in, in the Amazon, who had then become a devotee of the idea of home rule and then became a gunrunner for the Irish volunteers. He went to Berlin at the beginning of the Great War and he sought to raise an army of Irish prisoners who'd been taken by the Germans to form a brigade to come over. He had sought also to convince the Germans to send 20,000 men or 15,000 or whatever they would give to the cause and land them in Limerick and they would march and take the land. And failing that, he wanted guns, he wanted rifles. Well, finally, before Easter 1916, the Germans sent on a ship 20,000 guns and casement came by submarine to the south coast of Ireland. This was seen as what would make the revolution possible. There would be an uprising if there were guns, even if there weren't German soldiers themselves, but the volunteers would now have the weaponry with which to rise. Casement, everything went wrong. Casement ended up staggering onto the shore at Bannerstrand in County Kerry, where he'd capsized on the boat, an inflatable coming in. The ship on which the arms were being brought from Germany was intercepted and the captain of it scuttled it before it went into Queenstown in Cork. The question was, what would the rebels do who had said they were going to rise? This, that part of the story ended with Roger Casement being arrested and ultimately being imprisoned in the Tower of London. And after the rising, as we will see, he was hung in Pentonville Prison in August 1916. By then, the whole situation in Ireland had been fundamentally changed. So he could at least say that he had played a part in the transformation of Ireland, though not in the manner in which he might have expected when he stepped off that submarine in April 1916. So that's all gone wrong. The question for the rebels, for Pierce and his pals who have been planning this is, do they go ahead anyway? And they do go ahead anyway. I mean, it's the amazing thing, isn't it? They go ahead anyway, and they can go ahead. Because what happened was, immediately after the war, 
began, John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, called for the Irish volunteers to join the British Army and to fight in France. That led to a split in the Irish volunteers in which 15,000 or so, between 10 and 15,000, went with people under the charge of Owen MacNeill. And they began to drift towards the idea of revolution. But MacNeill would only go if there was two things happening. If the volunteers were going to be suppressed by the state and if there were arms coming from Germany and genuine prospect of success. So in the week before Easter 1916, those guys who were set on revolution from the IRB took a document that was in Dublin Castle and I think the phrase in English politics is sexed it up and, <laughs> and made it that the volunteers were about to be suppressed and convinced MacNeil of that. And then they told MacNeil there were guns coming from Germany. So MacNeil agreed. Everyone would rise on Easter Sunday morning. We would call for manoeuvres and we would use those manoeuvres to take various strategic places around Dublin and that the country would be sized with Limerick as a base and everything would manoeuvre there and then everything would rise and the British would be overthrown. Now, the problem was when MacNeil heard that the casement had been captured and there were no guns coming, he balked at the idea. Number two, he began to believe that the castle document was a forgery. This document that which said there it, which was suppression. It was. <laughs> well, it was the makings of a forgery, which had a basis in a real document that appears. Right. But it was ultimately a forgery. If you change the document, it's a forgery. So yes, uh, it's a long yeah. answer to a, <laughs> a simple question. So MacNeil issued countermanding orders, said that on Easter Sunday, there would now be no manoeuvres. He published a notice on the front page of the Sunday Independent, which best-selling paper in the country to cancel everything. So now the rebels with Pierce and Tom Clark, they're in Connolly, they're in a quandary. What do they do? They fear, they made a fateful decision. They said, we won't go on Sunday, we'll go on the Monday instead. The problem was they mobilised on Easter Monday morning and there was confusion in the ranks of all the volunteers. So the Wharton 15,000 came out. In course of the whole week, fewer than 2,000 came out and on the morning themselves there were probably fewer than 1,000. So into this building here, just after noon, they gathered in Liberty Hall, just down along the river from us here, which was the headquarters, which had a sign hanging outside it, we serve neither King nor Kaiser. They walked out through the doors of there and they headed to various parts around the city in their mobilization. They walked through these doors here. There were five soldiers on duty. They shot a sergeant in the face and they took over the general post office. And wasn't there was a one very unfortunate British soldier who was here buying stamps? <laughs> Incredibly bad his, timing. His timing was not ideal, yeah. and apparently he got he got access to a bottle of brandy yeah. later in the week, and he uh, he took a lot of minding. I think is the phrase <laughs> that was uh, that was bandied. Um, so they walk in. I mean, a small group of them, ultimately, compared with the the fifteen thousand they were hoping for. What's the reaction of the people of Dublin? when these guys pitch up and they say, listen, everybody, it's a revolution, a republic. I mean, the, the people who are buying stamps, going for lunch, going about their daily business, I'm guessing they're not swept. I mean, knowing crowds as I do in history, they're probably not swept up instantly by revolution enthusiasm, are they? No, because they're used to people parading on the streets and now Pierce is outside in his uniform reading a proclamation of a republic which they can't conceive of. And there are people there who are mocking. There are people who've got 
family who were fighting in the British Army on the front, were people looking at him in bemusement. And of course, there were others, of course, who were happy. Yeah. see it as revolution. But it's what happens next is really important. The rebels then began to put up barricades around the city. So they begin to stop life in the city and they attack Dublin Castle. And in, it is at Dublin Castle that the first shots of the revolution are fired and a policeman is killed going in. Now, we know in hindsight, and everybody says, this military plan was terrible. Why didn't you take Dublin Castle? Why didn't you take Trinity College? Why did you take the list of buildings that you took? Why did you go to the GPO? Yes, it's a grand building on the best street in the city. Yeah, the post office isn't the obvious place you would seize no, first. No, nor is Stephen's Green, where they built a trench in the middle of the green. Nor is the forecourt. Not a bad building along the Liffey. has some... But the, the, the thing about Dublin Castle, so the policeman who gets shot is unarmed. And I think there are what about kind of... There's one armed soldier in there. And the sense of, of Dublin Castle as this powerful nerve centre of imperial control. And actually, it seems to have been completely hopeless. Burrell was in London for the weekend. Other officials were away as well. Lots of officers were off at the races, weren't they? They they were at the Irish Grand National, (laughs) which was down in Ferry House. But it tells you how little they expected to be a revolution. They may have been worried on the Sunday, but after all, they got casement. They got the guns. They'd seen the countermanding order. There's no evidence that these guys are going to go out on the Monday and stage a revolution. So why won't I enjoy my Easter Monday? Why why wouldn't I go to the races? And the rebels didn't know. It's easy to say now, well, there were no guns there. There weren't 200 soldiers. Why didn't you take Dublin Castle and hold it? They yeah. might have considered it to be just too difficult to do it. So they, yeah. But they took City Hall, which is right beside Dublin Castle, a formidable building. And actually, if anybody wants to read an account of that, have a look online at the Bureau of Military History account of Harry Colley, who was a C-O-L-L-E-Y, who fought in that revolution. And he tells a really dramatic, vivid story of it. My favourite thing they take is the Jacob's Biscuit Factory. That was what I was going to ask. Why on earth do they take the Jacob's Biscuit Factory? Um, There is no obvious reason why that was was the case. (laughs) Uh, They also took a mill, Boland's Mills, and they took the South Dublin Union, which is a site of anyone who's been to Dublin will know James's Hospital. But not Trinity College, which is great. I mean, that would be a very strong place to hold, wouldn't it? Yes, and if you've got significant numbers with you, you might take Trinity College, but the plan for the rising has been lost. So they say there were three copies made of the plan for the rising. They were so worried about informers. They didn't make loads of copies, didn't disperse them, and the plans were lost. We don't know exactly what they intended to do before the mobilization ended up the way it is. And probably the most bizarre decision was actually to go into Stephen's Green, which visitors to Dublin will know is a beautiful public space at the top of Grafton Street, where they dug a trench in the manner of modern warfare. Well, isn't that because they thought... You know, they think modern warfare is all about trenches. Yes. The Great War, France and Flanders. So obviously what you need to do if you try to capture a city is dig a massive big trench in the middle and prepare for, you know, to repel attackers. Disappointingly, though, there are high buildings all around it where, <laughs> yeah, where which leaves you open. And, and it was an unmitigated disaster. And they withdrew it across Stevens Green to the Royal College of Surgeons where they stayed the rest of the week there. And my favourite detail almost from the East Rising is that when the British duly arrive and there's kind of fighting over St. Stephen's Green, that there's a kind of twice daily truce where the park keeper is allowed to go in and feed the ducks, which I think reflects very well on both sides. I think think that's true. I think that's true. I think it's matched only as a piece of trivia from the Rising by the fact that two people who fought in the Rising, uh, John Loader 
and Arthur Shields ended up starring in a Hollywood film which won five Oscars in the 1950s, the John Ford film. So that's, I that's think, the only thing that may match. But isn't there a bloke as well, his mum comes to take him home? Yeah, his mum his <laughs> had called to the GPO um, and <laughs> told him to stop that mess and then go home. Uh, but he came back the next day. Oh, okay. And the next day there was no, he didn't leave after that. So to go back to the Monday, by Monday afternoon, the city has not risen. And, no. and, and, and many of the people in the city, when they find out, well, am I right in this, that many of the people, when they find out what's going on, are furious, appalled. They think it's a, I mean, not everybody, of course. There is a whole, you can't generalize, but they haven't had the reaction, the unbridled enthusiasm that they that were they might have hoped for. for. Yeah. yeah. No, that's absolutely clear. I think it sometimes overplayed the extent to which people opposed what they did because the turn came so quickly afterwards and after the executions yeah. that it feels to me too much to say that, oh, the city was appalled, the city was disgusted. There were definitely people who were disgusted and appalled by it, but I would be slow to say how general that was. There were people amazed. But people often seem to say that it's women in particular who are hostile to it. And there are comparisons to the, the tricketeurs, the women who would knit in front of the guillotine in the French Revolution that women are so hostile that the volunteers are often kind of quite nervous about the violence that they might inflict on them. Yes. And again, that is said, but again, the, probably the best contemporary account of The Rising is a beautiful book by James Stevens, which is called The Insurrection in Dublin. And he talks about that idea of resentment at the rebels from particularly women on the streets. And it's, so we can't deny that that's, the case. It's the extent of it and how quickly it changed, I think, is that, mm. is that issue, number one. Number two, he has a brilliant line in it when he talks about the rumours that were sweeping Dublin when this happened. Cork had been taken. Munster was in rebel hands. The English were surrounded and in their barracks and couldn't leave. The country had risen. As he said himself, rumours were created and winged in the course of that week and they spread through the city. But the British are not surrounded and presumably troops are starting to be mobilised and brought in to try and pacify the rising. So what, what's the process by which the British come into Dublin? They come in without any difficulty at all because the rebels have not cut off the strategic ways into the city from Kildare, from the Curragh camp. So they come in easily. They stabilise the situation in Dublin Castle. It's clear by Monday evening that it's fine. By Tuesday, martial law has been declared. They bring four 18-pound artillery guns up from Athlone and they're set up near Trinity College there on Westmoreland Street and they begin to send troops over from Wales. They put troops on the ships and when those troops arrive on the Wednesday, they cannot believe how eloquent the English being spoken by the people they meet are because they right. thought they were going they think to France. They think they're going to France, yeah, of course. But even, I mean, the extraordinary thing, so within arguably less than a day, the final outcome is decided, right? Because they're, you know, it's pretty obvious probably by nightfall on the Monday that this isn't going to be a successful revolution, that, you know, Dublin Castle still stands, the British are on their way, this is going to be snuffed out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there are, above us here, the Irish Republic flag, the green flag with the harp on it is flying at one end. The tricolour, the green, white and orange is flying at the other end. But the rebel headquarters, how does it communicate with everybody else? There are barricades at the end of the each end of the street with British soldiers at each end of them. There's a smell and sound of revolution. Yeah, There's gunshots everywhere. James Stevens writes 
he talks about writing this as he hears shots in the streets. There are horses dying on the street and later there are wild horses running up and down the street. And then there's looting everywhere around the city. And, and they're they loot looting. cricket bats, don't they? They looted, looted. I think there are some incredible scenes. So there's the scene of five people pushing through a Dublin street, carrying a grand piano, five <laughs> of them which has been looted. And there are people who loot cricket bats and balls and they play cricket on the bottom of That's Sackville Street. And there's a beautiful phrase and poignant and desperately sad one about which James Stevens writes about a group of children who've looted a sweet shop and they get to taste things which they most likely have never tasted before and may never again wow. in the rest of their lives. Almost all the people we've talked about, apart from Thomas talking about the crowds, have been men. But there are women involved in this, in the Easter Rising too, aren't there? Yes, and they're extremely important to the Rising and to the idea of the Rising as well. And they run from somebody like Constance Markovich, who was from the Gore Booth family, very Lissadell House, very familiar to Yates. And she is a figure who was in Stephen's Green, was involved in the Irish Citizen Army. I kind of saw herself and was seen by others as the leader of that group who were up there and who were retreated to Dublin Castle. She fired apparent claims to have killed somebody or there are claims that she shot one person yeah. there. There are others such I, as Mar Margaret Skinner who came from Scotland to come over and fight. And Countess Markovitz has a, a tremendous costume, doesn't she? And this also seems to be part of the Easter Rising is that people want to look good for it. The imagery of the Rising matters and it certainly, she was wearing a hat with ostrich feathers and it was quite the statement, I think, when it was out there and it has led, I think, to an unfortunate image of her as being excessively vain and there is no doubt she had a certain vanity and, and do that. But she was also famous for her diligence and her committee work and her willingness to do all the hard work as well as she wasn't there for the glamour of revolution. She had worked exceptionally hard to create that revolution. And if you look at the women who were in the Rising, they span people from that elite of Irish society right down to people who came from the very poorest circumstances and found a sense of liberation from being treated as equals within the Irish Citizen Army. Now, we can't dress this up. We cannot pretend that all the men who were out in 1916 reviewed women as their equals. It's obvious that they didn't, and they certainly didn't. Some people didn't want them there at all. Some men didn't want them there at all, and some definitely didn't want them firing guns. And they were seen as being there to do the catering or, or the medical work. So it's not, we have to be careful here in, in right. how that is presented. And what about the British? When these soldiers arrive, they think they're going to France and they find that they're in a city within the United Kingdom. What is their take on what is happening? Well, first of all, you look at the soldiers who walk in from Kingstown, now Dunleary, in the south side of Dublin. They walk in, a group of them goes on the wider road in through Donnybrook and they're fine. They make it to Stevens Green in that area without problems. But there's a group come in along Northumberland Street and they've been set up by an outpost from Avon de Valera's crowd who are in Bolham Mills and they run into an ambush and there are the guts of 250 British soldiers who are killed or wounded being caught in the crossfire between about 17 or 18 rebels. One rebel talks about who, how the gun was too hot to handle. He'd been firing it that often and that was almost like it was charge of the light brigade idea that we will go through this or, road or and I we will take battle of the Somme battle coming of the Somme, out of a exactly, trench and which discharging, comes, which comes in a yeah. in very, very quickly afterwards, of course. And again, by the way, it's a formidable foundation stone for Ulster unionism and central to Ulster unionist identity. But in that it is clear on Wednesday that 
there is only going to be one result. If there were any doubt, because the Helga, a gunboat, comes up the Liffey and stops, first of all, beside Liberty Hall, which is along beside the Customs House. There's nobody in Liberty Hall, but it's a statement. This is where the rebels left from. This is the home of anti-capitalism in Dublin. And they blew it to pieces. Yeah. Meanwhile, by Thursday, this building here is being subjected to a barrage from, of artillery shells and incendiary shells coming from across the river. They're not attempting to storm the building. Storming buildings in urban warfare would have been incredibly difficult. A lot of loss of life. So they just take this place and they essentially burn it. So there is an incredible description of that. So this is uh, Louisa Norway. She is, who, who is Louisa Norway? She, she is the wife of the head of the post office, right. Arthur Norway. And so she, she wrote, it seemed as if the whole city was on fire, the glow extending right across the heavens and the red glare hundreds of feet high, while above the roar of the fires, the whole air seemed vibrating with the noise of the great guns and machine guns. It was an inferno. We remained spellbound and I can't tell you how I longed for you to see it. So the sense there that this is a horror, but also an incredible spectacle. And Sackville Street, as it was then, was the most handsome city in Dublin. I mean, the most handsome street in Dublin, yes. And as the Freeman's Journal wrote afterwards, the most handsome street in Europe had been destroyed and turned into a room like you would see at Ypres. And it was a simple case we look at the GPO and this, for people who don't know it, there's a couple of hundred meters between the GPO and the Liffey. All of this was flattened. Mm. Everything was blown out of it. The rebels had had to retreat back along there. And there was no doubt the overwhelming gunpowder, they didn't try and storm the building, which would have cost enormous loss of life. So they just put shells in. And so by the end of the week, the rebels, I mean, they've held out for a few days, but it's perfectly obvious to Pierce to hold out much further would involve colossal loss of civilian life. There's just no point, and he agrees to surrender. On Friday, they're forced to leave this building here to evacuate through the back entrance or through a side entrance onto Moore Street. There's a retreat with a couple of hundred people. James Connolly's on a stretcher. He's not able to walk. His ankle is gone. Plunkett is sick. There are a lot of people in a bad way, but the heat is too much to say. The timbers from the roof are cascading down. There's talk about the intense heat and everybody's hungry. And they've all been right, held even in, in the biscuit hungry. factory because apparently hungry. they're complaining that they're so fed up with eating biscuits that they do anything to <laughs> yeah, have some yeah. bread. <laughs> which is... and, and what happens then is they withdraw down Henry Street and onto Moore Street where there's a last stand on the, on the Friday night. But by Saturday morning, Plunkett is sending Elizabeth O'Farrell under a white flag to suggest surrender and looking for terms and it's told back to say it's unconditional surrender or no surrender. And they go for the unconditional. They go for the unconditional surrender and Elizabeth O'Farrell is then dispatched around the city to go to the different garrisons and you talked about the view of the city being on fire but the rebel garrisons were untouched elsewhere. Mm. Broadly speaking there was trouble around the forecourse there was street fighting around that area which led to a lot of civilian death many killed by the British Army who couldn't distinguish between rebels and civilian as they came through. South Dublin Union was left untouched. Boland's Mills was left largely untouched. So they were going, wait, we don't need to surrender. And the country hadn't risen, but Enniscorthy had been taken. And Enniscorthy, they're going, why do we have to do this? Out in Ashburn, there'd been a small rising in Ashburn where they were running battles with the RSC and British Army. They don't want to stop. But they do stop eventually. They do stop within a couple of days and 
it's clear that the Republic lies in ruins. But this is the fascinating thing, isn't it? So the rising has been a complete failure. Militarily, you know, it hasn't worked. But the reason we're even doing this podcast is because politically, it is a resounding success. And now the usual account that I'm guessing that most people listening to this will have, who know about it will have at the back of their minds is the British defeated the rising and then completely screwed it up by their, their violent repression and by the cruelty of the executions and all this. Now, I, both Tom and I were listening to a series of lectures by your old tutor, Professor Michael Laffam at UCD, who compared it with the, the Paris Commune of 1871. Fall of the Paris Commune, he said 20,000 people were executed. Is it 16 executed? Including casement. Including casement at the end of these. So in other words, actually, when you look at people repressing rebellions, well, the British don't execute loads of... But he also makes the point that this is seen as treachery and treason. In the middle of a world war. In the middle of a world war where Britain is facing a kind of deadly threat that the rebels have sided with the Kaiser. But also, does he not also make the point, he says, for Asquith's government, it's completely and utterly inconceivable that they would say... Oh, oh chaps, that was that was poor form. You know, we'll put, you know <laughs> the centre of Dublin lies in ruins. Five years prison, then you can come out and be rehabilitated. I mean, that's never going to happen, right? And to add to, to that, the rebel leaders themselves knew they were going to be executed beforehand. There was no, there was no surprise in this, right? But how then them. does it become such a massive issue? I mean, these guys, we've come from downstairs. The statues are there. The sense of martyrdom the sense that these guys gave their lives against a, a hideously repressive enemy and that this became an absolute motivating, I don't want to say legend because that makes it sound like it didn't happen. It did happen. Yeah. The extent to which it became... Well, change, change utterly, a terrible beauty is born, as right. Yeats puts it. How did it then become, against the background of the slaughter in the trenches, how does it become this, dare I say, Tom, sacral, is, yeah. story it for Irish sacral. nationalism. Oh, it is a sacral story. And it's, the answer is because of the executions. Because it doesn't matter what happened in Paris. It didn't matter these things. And it comes back to this idea where I disagree with the idea that there was widespread revulsion around the place. There is an underlying current there which is looking for a reason. And the reason you find is in the executions. And you can see it in the middle of the executions. The executions began on the 3rd of May and they ran for 10 days. And that was a mistake because by the middle of the 10 days, there are people looking for clemency. And to be, when you have people looking for clemency, you have to deny clemency. And it becomes a story as much as the execution itself. Yeah. But so just, that was a mistake. But is it also a kind of reflection of the fact that actually Irish nationalists are holding the British to quite high standards that they feel that the British have then failed to, to maintain. Is there an element of that? Do you I think? wouldn't think so. I think they're just people. They're it's just people. looking for reasons to. I think you're looking for reasons. And if you look at it, it happens immediately. And there's a roundup afterwards, which is a disaster. They corral three and a half thousand people. Loads of people are sent to Wales and interned and people are moved to different places. They lift all the wrong people yeah. as well as who are rebels there. There's stories coming out, but also now the factory of nationalist grievance has something to work with. To work with. So it, has, it has two things. It has, sorry, it has two things. It has the fight now because there has been a redemption through resurrection and it has the treatment afterwards to work with. 
One other extraordinary consequence of this is that one group who have, you've not mentioned once is Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, which had been a monarchist party. Arthur Griffith was a monarchist. He wanted a kind of Austro-Hungarian system. And the British don't really know what Sinn Féin is and say, this is all Sinn Féin's work. This is a, a Sinn Féin uprising. And they basically, the reaction to the Easter Rising creates Sinn Féin as a kind of, as a mass revolutionary party, I guess. Does it? Is that right? And it begins by things like Sinn Féin being named. So, for example, the Irish Times published a handbook, which is a huge seller, sells out of the rebellion, a couple of hundred pages with pictures and portraits and of the leaders. And they call it the Sinn Féin Rebellion. So the idea, Sinn Féin is an idea. It's an accumulation of the idea. And Sinn Féin in Irish means ourselves. And it captures an idea beautifully. Now, Sinn Féin had nothing practical to do with the rebellion at all, but it now becomes a vehicle for people to push into. Right. And, and for push they do. Course. But it's, it's amazing. It's amazing some of the things that happen. Within a month, there are prisoners who've been wrongly lifted or had nothing to do with the rising, are coming back on ships and they're being met at the quay by loads of people wearing tricolours. A year after, there are requiem masses for the executed of 1916. Huge crowds are going. There's now taunting of the soldiers in the streets. A year after the rebellion, on Easter Monday, 1917, a group of people come here to the rubble of this site and they gather to say the Irish Republic is not dead that the Irish Republic transcends time, that Pierce and Connolly and Clark and Kant and MacDiarmida, by the very, and MacDonough, by the very fact of establishing their provisional government, by signing that proclamation, by leading revival, had made certain the idea that there could be no unity. So that raises a wonderful counterfactual. What if the rising had been cancelled? What if... You know, the casement, the failure of the gun running that you started this part of the episode with. What if the rising doesn't happen? Is the course of Irish history different or would there be, would the trigger have come at some point in the 1910s anyway? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. And this idea of the counterfactual of this period has been looked at by, say, for example, someone like Professor Alvin Jackson up in Edinburgh, a brilliant historian who's looked at what would happen if home rule had been granted, for example, and mm. things. And it's one of those things that it's really difficult. What I can say is there is a strain of Irish society which never accepted the idea of a United Kingdom. And in the middle, there was a huge swathe of population who, there were Irish, they were not British, and it comes down to language as well and terminology. Ireland was never part of Britain. There were people who identified and still identify as British who lived in Ireland, but it was part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. That geographic boundary had to matter. Mm. And maybe in time, things would have been dissolved to the point where it wouldn't matter anymore. But there was no evidence in history that that would be the case. Right. But it does go ahead. And Fogel McGarry, brilliant book on the rising. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. For uh, he, he describes the proclamation with which we began this series as a stunningly ambitious act of imagination. And the amazing thing about it is, as you've been saying, that this stunningly ambitious act of imagination creates a reality that maps onto the act of imagination in the long run. Because what happens in due course is the war of independence, the civil war, the establishment of the free state, 
independent state of Ireland exists now kind of does follow from this to a degree, doesn't it? And you look at some of the people who are here who came back and we didn't mention the people who came from England or Scotland to fight in this rebellion, one of whom was Michael Collins, who came back having worked in the post office in, in London for a while. And they learned the lessons because there had been a dispute in the volunteers before this one, whether they should be going into a hedge campaign, as in it would be guerrilla warfare. But they learned the lessons. They never set up in the city again. They go for guerrilla warfare. And it is the rebels who are from here. They build from this. And they build out into success where the idea of anything less than ultimate independence will not be acceptable. But that is another story. It is, is it Tom, not? we will have to... We will clearly have to return to Dublin at some future point to do the rest of the story, the War of Independence, the Civil War, Ireland in the 1920s and so on. I know we're also going to do a series about the Troubles at some point, so more Irish history to come. And I hope Joyce. Tom's desperate to do Joyce because Tom wants everybody to know, and, <laughs> and this is really what this series has been about. This is, the, this is the story we want people to take away, isn't it, Tom? That you once won a T-shirt and a James Joyce themed pub quiz, pub crawl quiz yeah. competition in Dublin. in Dublin. Yes, but I don't, I don't <laughs> want that to be the note on which we end, Dominic. No, well, it won't be because we should say a massive thank you to Paul Rouse who has performed manfully. We've asked an awful lot of you, Paul, because basically your brief was to do all Irish <laughs> history. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, not just for your fantastic performance in the episode, but also for your tremendous hospitality here in Dublin. And we also did a live show, didn't we, last night, Tom? So yeah, we did. thank you to everybody who yeah. came, to all our Irish listeners. And also thank you to Angus Lufty, who has provided this room, looking out over what was Sackville Street, is now O'Connell Street. And here we are. I mean, what better place to have recorded this yeah. series than in the GPO itself? So thank you, Paul. And thank you to everybody for listening. And goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.